0: been a year and a half, maybe a little bit longer, since we first began Acts back in May of 2022. And after taking a final uh, several breaks along the way for time in Psalms and other topical series, we have finally come to the last passage in Acts. We have finished the book, although not quite yet. Uh, but if you have been with us for the last portion of this series, Uh, you may have two questions on your mind. On the one hand, you may be wondering, why does Luke drag out these last several chapters with so much detail? In Acts 1 through 20, depending on your dating of events, uh, we covered approximately 25 to 30 years of early church history. By contrast, in the last eight chapters that we've covered, we've only covered five years of early church history. And in those chapters, you'll know we read three trials, three defenses, uh, three speeches, all that have variations of the same theme, same story. And then last week, we read a super detailed account of Paul's final voyage to Rome. So why is, in this particular way, Luke slowing down the pace of his storytelling to include all these details? But on the other hand, especially since Luke is slowing down the pace so much, You may wonder, especially with the way the scripture was just read, why does Luke end the story so abruptly? We've been focused on Paul's trial, his appeal to Caesar. But now that he's finally in Rome, we learn nothing about whether he actually got to Caesar, whether his appeal went well. Uh, We don't even get a particularly detailed description of his ministry in Rome that he's been so longing uh, to do. And although this hasn't been the focus of Acts, we know from Rome that his intention was to get to Rome, to get to Spain. We find no recounting of whether or not Paul made it all the way to Spain. And so why did Luke write the story this way? On the one hand, giving us so much detail leading up to the end of Acts, but on the other hand, abruptly ending the story with so many loose ends. Well, we can't say for sure, I think there's two reasons Luke writes in this way. First, Tim Keller provides us with a possible explanation for why Paul included so much detail. He writes, probably the main purpose of Luke is to show the relationship between God's control of history and the witness and mission of the church. All throughout the book of Acts, the primary theme has been the communication of the gospel to more and more of the world." And the early chapters tend to show the gospel breaking through barrier after barrier after barrier. So in chapter 2, the Holy Spirit at Pentecost falls on all these Jewish Christians hearing the gospel preach. In chapter 3, we find the healing of a crippled beggar. In chapters 4 and 5, we find the bold defense between, before the Sanhedrin and the apostles' release. And then in chapter 8, we find the public denouncement of Simon the sorcerer and the mission to Samaria, the gospel making its way to the Samaritans. And then in chapter 9, we see the conversion of literally the worst enemy of the church in Saul. And then in chapters 10 and 11, we find the conversion of Cornelius, a Gentile, showing that the gospel had made its way into not Jews and Samaritans alone, but also Gentiles. And then in chapter 12, we see Peter's miraculous escape from prison and Herod Agrippa striking down dead. And then we find in 13 all the way up to 20, the highly successful missionary journeys of Paul. And so outside the death of Stephen and a few places of suffering along the way, there's almost an unrelenting series of dramatic victories. And so if Luke had ended his book eight chapters earlier, where we picked up this fall in chapter 20, it would have been easy for us to have gotten the false impression that if you follow Jesus, your life will be nothing but victory, nothing but success after success. But the history of Paul's imprisonment, trials, and voyage to Rome give us a whole new perspective. Throughout these accounts, we're given the profound lesson that God works out his purposes for the spread of the gospel and his kingdom even and sometimes especially through our weakness and defeats. And so in chapter after chapter, we've seen over the last several weeks, through apparent accidents, despite hostile behavior of his enemies, and despite the sins and flaws of the people he's speaking to, and even through difficulties and suffering, God is at work. And so the case study is right here. God gets Paul to Rome and opens the doors for him to preach the gospel, Uh, in some of the most strategic places, and yet he's doing it through imprisonment, danger, and trouble. And so this seems to be the reason for Luke's highly detailed account in these last eight chapters. But if he included all of these details, then why is he stopped short? Why doesn't he finish out the story? Well, here I think Tony Merida helps us. He writes this. Acts essentially ends on a big to be continued. Why? Well, because Luke didn't intend to write a biography of Paul. That's not where it began, actually. Luke purposed to describe the acts of the Lord Jesus accomplished by his Spirit through his people. He set out to describe the unstoppable progress of the gospel. And his first book, the Gospel of Luke, set out to tell all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up. The book of Acts, then, is all about what Jesus continued to do after he ascended to the right hand of the Father. And so the ministry of Jesus continues through the Spirit in the church. And so Luke leaves us with Paul preaching the gospel, describing the kingdom in Rome. And in choosing to walk away from the story here, Luke masterfully is keeping Jesus, not Paul, not anyone else, as the hero of the story. Luke concludes Acts on a note of victory, with the triumph of King Jesus. And this is a fitting conclusion for the book of Acts. But Luke's message then ends up ending here being something like this. This book is finished, but the mission of the church is not. The mission of Jesus continues through us still today. This means that Christians, whether in 1st century Rome or 21st century America, get to enter the story. We get to participate in the next chapters of Acts. The story continues. We get to join in the drama of spreading the gospel to the nations. And so while God replaces his messengers over time, the message and the mission assigned to Christians and to the church will remain unchanging until Jesus returns. And of course, this has been the point, as we've said, of Acts from the very beginning. Acts was not primarily written to celebrate the acts of the apostles or the acts of the early church, but rather to celebrate the acts of the risen Christ in and through his people, through the first century and even still today. And so this morning, as we conclude Acts and take a look particularly at Acts 28, we'll see that this text is tailored to invite us to join Jesus and his mission. This text is tailored to invite us to join Jesus and his mission. And specifically, as we join Jesus and his mission, Acts 28 gives us five examples of how we can faithfully, Follow Jesus and join him in his work. But before we dive in, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, which just so wonderfully tells how you are at work sovereignly through your spirit and your people. And we ask today as we conclude this wonderful book that you would use it to stir our hearts with great zeal for the mission you have entrusted to us so that we would be eager to join you in your mission and we would be faithful in following you on it. But Lord, we most especially ask, as we do every week, that you would use our time together this morning in word and in song and prayer to stir our hearts with love and affection for Jesus. Beyond the eagerness to participate in your mission, we ask that you would stir us with love for him and with a vision of how good he is and how good it would be for his name to be known among the nations. Please help me to preach your word clearly, faithfully, and passionately so that Jesus would be exalted here in this place and to the ends of the earth. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, if you've not turned there yet, I invite you to open your Bible to Acts chapter 28, uh, verse 1. Uh, If you don't have a Bible with you, you can use one of the community Bibles under your seat or the seat next to you. And if you're not familiar with the scriptures, you can find our passage on page 937. Uh, You'll be looking for a big, bold 28. That's a chapter. Um, Once you have found that, I would invite you to just take a moment to ready your heart uh, to receive God's word. You know what burdens, distractions, fears you have about joining in Jesus' mission. Surrender those to the Lord right now and ask that he would speak to you clearly this morning a word that he has prepared for you. Well, if you're ready to receive God's word, say, I'm ready. ready. Look with me at verse 1. After we were brought safely through the storm we saw last week, He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or to suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed put his hands on him and healed him. and when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put us on board uh, put on board whatever we needed. So here we see as we join Jesus in his mission, we should not be surprised when non-Christians are kind, hospitable and honorable. We should not be surprised when non-Christians are kind, hospitable, and honorable. Now, last week we saw that despite being at the mercy of a violent storm, God brought Paul and his companions safely through to this island that we learned this week in verse 1 is called Malta. And in verse 2, we learned that the natives of this island showed the shipwrecked survivors unusual kindness by starting a fire and welcoming them on a cold and rainy day. And you can imagine how meaningful and unexpected this would be for these survivors. They would have known that if they were going to make it, now that they had made it to the shore, they would need shelter and heat so that they could get dry and warm. And yet, if you remember, they had been two weeks without food except for one quick meal. They were weary, exhausted. They had just made the treacherous journey from the ship through violent waves onto the shore. You can imagine how exhausted they would have been. And if it was a cold day, you could imagine how frigid they might have been after being in the water. How difficult it may have been to muster up the energy to do what would have been needed to survive, to build shelter, to build a fire, to do what they needed to get warm and dry. And yet, here, in the midst of that, the natives show unusual kindness. Preparing a fire in the rain, getting it all started for them. How meaningful that would have been. But it also would have been incredibly surprising as our islanders and just arrived on the shore were 276 survivors, among whom are armed soldiers, prisoners in chains, and other passengers. And all of them would have been complete strangers to these islanders. Can you imagine that kind of crew showing up on the shore and saying, hey, we're going to go build you a fire. We don't know what your intentions are. We don't know if we can trust you. You've got all these weapons. You've got people who clearly have done something wrong. And yet they go and show kindness. This is exactly what the natives of Malta do. That's why he calls it an unusual kindness. It's strange. It's unexpected. And it's important for us to know, as we'll see in a minute, that these natives are not Christians. And yet they're still unusually kind and hospitable. And sometimes we as Christians can mistakenly believe and treat non-Christians as if inherently Christians are more kind, more honest, more hospitable, more good, and so on. You may have even heard sometimes people will refer you to a particular doctor or a particular mechanic because they might be a Christian. Just be honest with you. Please don't ever make a recommendation to me like that. I don't care if my mechanic is a Christian. I care that they're a good mechanic. But sometimes what that reveals is, we assume that because someone is a Christian, that they must be better at all this other stuff. But that's not the case. These natives, these unchristian people, are not just kind and welcome, welcoming, they are unusually so. We shouldn't be surprised that non-Christians will sometimes be even more kind, more hospitable, more honorable than Christians. Although the Bible makes it clear that Christians should increasingly become more kind, we should be becoming more hospitable, we should be becoming more honorable, nowhere does the Bible assume that Christians will actually be better than non-Christians at any of those things. Fundamentally, what separates a Christian from a non-Christian is not our behavior. It's not our conduct. It's not our kindness. It's not our moral goodness. It's not how hospitable we are. And so if it's not our kindness and conduct that separates Christians from non-Christians, then what is it? Well, we see this illustrated in the way the, the people respond to Paul being bitten by a snake. When he's bitten, they at first assume that must mean that he was a murderer. But then when he doesn't die, they assume that must mean he's a god. And why this sudden change in perspective? Well, because the pagan worldview at this time was one in which everyone faithfully served a god or the gods. And the nature of the relationship was such that if I do what this god wants me to do, I offer the right sacrifices, the right behavior, then they must give me what I've asked for. They must protect me. It was a way of manipulating the gods to get what you want. And if you dishonored the gods or disobeyed the gods or didn't jump through the hoops, instead of giving you what you asked for, they would punish you. And so what these people are beginning to assume then is Paul must be getting what he deserved. He must have dishonored the God justice. He must have done something wrong to warrant this snake bite. But then on the other hand, when all of a sudden he doesn't die from a snake bite, at the very least it must mean that he's blessed by the gods. He's done the right sacrifice. He's jumped through the right hoops. If not, as they conclude, is a God himself. And this is the fundamental difference between Christians and non-Christians. Christians Christians recognize that no matter how kind, how hospitable, no matter how honorable you are, there is no one who is kind enough. There is no one who is hospitable enough. There is no one who is honorable enough. That's the fundamental problem. We as Christians recognize that we all fall short of the kindness and mercy of God revealed supremely in the person of Jesus. We recognize that there is no amount of kindness, hospitality, or good deeds that could earn God's blessing. No, what we deserve is judgment. What we deserve is wrath. And so, the fundamental difference between the Christian and non Christian is not our conduct, but rather that we recognize we need a Savior. We need Jesus to rescue, reconcile, and renew us, as our statement of faith says. And so, if you're not a Christian, I hope you'll understand that the Bible nowhere says that you should expect Christians to be better than you. And if you've ever interacted with a Christian who treats you like they're better than you, they're wrong. What the Bible makes clear, the core issue is, is not how good we are, but how needy we are. All of us, no matter how good we are, our goodness is not enough to please God. And so we need a Savior This is what Jesus came to do on our behalf. By his perfect life of kindness, goodness, hospitality, honor, he earned for us what we owe to God, a perfect life of righteousness. By his death on the cross, he paid the penalty we deserve for falling short of that measure, for not being as kind as we should be. And by his resurrection from the grave, he conquered the power of sin, which is death. And now he offers forgiveness. For the penalty of sin. He offers freedom from the power of sin, and he offers the hope of eternal life with relationship with God if we would repent of our sin and trust in him. And so, if you have never repented of your sin and trusted in Christ, I would plead with you today to consider doing so. And if you'd want to know more about what that looks like, come talk with me or any of our members after the service. We would love to tell you more. But after Paul is bitten, and all the people assume he's a God, surprisingly, Luke doesn't tell us how Paul responds to this. But given how Paul responds in other situations, and the fact verse 11 tells us that they were on this island for three months, it's probably safe to assume Paul explains, no, I'm not a God, but actually this is the power of Jesus, the God whom I worship, who died for me, who's at work in me. And then he would go on to show the power of his Savior by healing the chief's father, And then all who would come to him with those who had diseases. And with the result that by the time they're ready to leave, in verse 10 it says, they also honored us greatly. And when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. And interestingly here, Luke doesn't tell us whether these natives of Malta become Christians. But in leaving their relationship to Christ undefined, he illustrates that not only should we be not surprised when non-Christians are kind and hospitable and honorable, but sometimes non-Christians will even want to value Christianity. They'll appreciate it without actually wanting to believe it. And we're actually beginning to see this start to take place in our own culture again. Although much of America finds what we believe as Christians crazy, and why wouldn't they? We believe Jesus rose from the dead. That is crazy for most people. People don't normally rise from the dead. It's also true that more and more people are beginning to realize that without Christianity, they don't have the foundation for the things they value most. Things like freedom, kindness, progress, and equality. Those things are very hard to preserve without their Christian foundations. And for that reason, some non-Christians, even atheists, who are opposed to the idea of a God altogether, don't want to become Christians but they are also growing in their value for Christianity. They don't want to lose Christianity in America. They want to preserve it so that they can preserve those values. So if you'd be interested at all in learning a little bit of that dynamic going on, I'd encourage you to either read uh, The Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God by Justin Brierley or The Air We Breathe by Glenn Scrivener. They're doing slightly different things. Uh, the, The book, The Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God, Is trying to trace how atheists are actually coming to say, hey, the the antagonistic uh, kind of hateful approach we took towards Christianity was misguided. We we need to consider this again. And then The Air We Breathe by Glenn Scrivener is actually trying to show how everything we value in the West today actually has its roots in the Christian faith. But either way, one of the things we see in these first ten verses is that non-Christians here are kind, hospitable, Honorable, they even seem to show some sort of appreciation for Paul and his companions, despite not believing what Paul has been teaching. And so the first way we can join Jesus in his mission is by not being surprised when non-Christians are kind, hospitable, and honorable. Because again, the primary thing that separates Christians from non-Christians is not how good we are. It's not our conduct, but it's our need for a Savior and our recognition of that need. Second, look with me at verse 11. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there, we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Putoli. There we found brothers, and we were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. Here we see that we should take courage from God's work in and through other Christians. We should take courage from God's work in and through other Christians. So in these verses, Paul finally arrives in Rome. And along the way, we see the amazing work of God. When Paul finally lands on the mainland of Italy, he arrives in Petolia, a 10-day journey southeast of Rome. And there they find brothers or other Christians before Paul's arrived to share the gospel there. The gospel has gone before him to bring about a Christian community there. And then from there, Pastor Kent Hughes describes, they walk the 140 miles to Rome. About 43 miles outside Rome, the most wonderful things happen. Christian brothers and sisters come out to meet him at the Market of Appius. And then another 10 miles closer at the three taverns, yet other Christians greet him. And here is the amazing reminder that the advancement of the gospel doesn't rest on any one person's shoulders. It didn't depend upon Paul to get to Rome for the gospel to go there. It had already gone there before him. The burden... For building the church doesn't rest on any one person other than Jesus who promised, I will build my church. The gospel has already made it here. And so as one scholar points out, the hero of Acts, again, is not Paul or Peter. It's God himself who powerfully advances the gospel through the known world. God has more zeal for his kingdom than any missionary ever could. The mission of the gospel rises above any one mission, uh, one missionary. God doesn't need Paul. He doesn't need you. He does, however, summon all his people to join in his mission. We get to participate in this great work of bringing glory to our Savior as he uses us as ambassadors. And not only does this mission not depend on each one of us individually, but we actually depend upon one another as we join Jesus in his mission. Notice here that Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, the one who wrote the vast majority of the New Testament, who has decades of experience in planting churches, takes courage. Why? After he sees these brothers in Italy. God's work in and through these Christians is what gives Paul the courage to continue to do what God has called him to do in Rome. And so if Paul, despite all his gifting, all his experience, all his maturity, needed brothers and sisters in Christ to encourage him. Let me just be clear. Then I definitely do. I definitely need your encouragement in order to persevere in the ministry God has called me to. And as Paul has thanked God for that encouragement he received from the brothers in Italy, I thank God for the encouragement I received from this congregation. So many of you make it a point to share with me how God is at work through the preaching of His Word, or to simply share what God is doing in your life as you personally engage God's Word. Just this week, I was privileged to hear from Greg, Sherry, Karen, Betty, always that God was using either one of my sermons or simply time and His Word to renew and transform their heart. And so I want to say thank you to you four in particular for this week encouraging me. But I also want to say thank you to all of you for taking it upon yourself to be an encouragement to me so that I might persevere in what God has called me to, to take courage that no matter what I'm facing, I ought to persevere in Christ. But I'd also say it's not just Paul and not just me who needs encouragement, who needs help taking courage to do the ministry God has called us to. We all need the encouragement from God. that comes through our brothers and sisters in Christ. Evangelism, as Paul was doing it, can be scary for all of us. Discipling others, investing in others in a way that does them spiritual good, can be intimidating for us. Ministering with patience to the whole person so that we're actually patient in the process of them changing can be trying work. And so we need one another to give each other the courage to persevere and the encouragement to endure. And yet, it's so common today to hear people say, I'm spiritual but not religious. Or I want a relationship with Jesus but not the church. And to a certain extent, we ought to recognize that's understandable given that institutional religion has hurt people, that church hurt is real. And these kinds of experiences can make people wary of organized religion, can make people fearful of the church. But if you at all relate to any of those hesitations regarding the church, What I would just want you to notice here in this passage is that the Apostle Paul himself needed brothers and sisters in Christ to take courage to do what God had called them to. And if Paul needed it, then so do you. We all need the encouragement that comes from Christian community in order to have courage put in us, in courage, to face what God has called us to. God has wired us for this from the very beginning, not only to need a relationship with him, but to need a relationship with his people. And so I would just plead with you, and for whatever reason you're tempted to commit to Jesus without ever committing to his people, I would encourage you to instead try to find a church that at the very least trying to teach what the Bible actually says, that's trying to live out what the Bible teaches and commit to that church, however imperfect it is, trusting that Jesus has your good in mind so a second way we join Jesus in his mission is by taking courage from God's work in and through, not just ourselves, but other Christians. Third, look with me at verse 17. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. And when they, the Romans, had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, we have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. And when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God, and trying to convince them about Jesus from both the law of Moses And from the prophets. Here we see, as we join Jesus in his mission, we should make the most of every opportunity to teach all people about King Jesus from all of Scripture. We should make the most of every opportunity to teach all people about King Jesus from all of Scripture. While Paul is under house arrest and in chains, he wastes no time summoning the Jewish leaders to meet him in his home. Three days later, they gather together, and he explains why he's appealed to Caesar. It's not because he has anything against Israel. It's not because he even wants to accuse the Jewish leaders of anything. It's only because he wanted to seek justice and wasn't going to get it. And the Jewish leaders were opposing him simply for the hope he had in Jesus. Now, shockingly, at least shockingly to me, The Jewish leaders of Rome say they've not heard anything evil or negative about Paul. In fact, they've not heard about Paul at all. But they have, testifying to the pervasiveness of Christianity, say that they've heard about this sect because everywhere it's spoken against, showing how widespread Christianity has gone already. And so they ask to hear more directly from Paul to understand what Christians believe. And of course, Paul makes the most of this opportunity, invites them back in order to explain the gospel of the kingdom and to teach about Jesus, even in his non-ideal circumstances. And in doing this, he's simply putting into practice what he wrote to the Colossians, likely during this time under house arrest. He writes to them in Colossians chapter 4, devote yourselves to prayer, stay alert in it with thanksgiving. And at the same time, pray also for us that God may open a door for us for the word. To speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains, so that I may make it known as I should. Act wisely towards outsiders, making the most of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you should answer each person. Now, Regarding this passage and the circumstances under which Paul wrote it, Pastor Tony Merida points out this. Don't miss that in this passage, Paul's asking for prayer that he could make effectively known the message about Christ. Not that he would be released from prison. Not that he would get his appeal granted to Caesar in a way that vindicates him. And he's exhorting other believers to think about things in the same way, to make the most of their time, living with evangelistic sensitivity towards unbelievers. Importantly, Paul is living out his own advice. He's seeking to make the most of this opportunity to do ministry in Rome, And he knows he needs God's help to effectively and faithfully do so. And here I just want to encourage you to remember something we've seen again and again and again in Acts. You don't have to manufacture a moment for the gospel. That's not something you need to feel the burden to. God is opening up doors all the time. We simply need to make the most of it. We need to be aware of it. We need to walk through the door when the Lord opens it. And sometimes those opportunities actually open up in the most unideal of circumstances, like being under house arrest. And yet, nevertheless, God is opening up doors for the word all the time. Our job is simply to wisely make the most of them. And so how does Paul do so? Well, if you've ever thought my sermons were long, look here, from morning till evening, he expounded to them testifying to the kingdom of God, trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Paul takes all day, all day to convince these people that Jesus is their long-awaited king. He's the king of the kingdom that they have so long anticipated. And although he does so specifically with Jews here, verses 30 and 31 show us that after that, he welcomes everyone to teach them about this so it's worth noting, just like in Paul's day, we live in a day where it may take a lot of time to explain someone Christianity. We have to build basically the entire framework for someone to even understand the gospel message we're explaining. We as Christians have to explain that God made a perfect world, that sin broke it, and that God out of love stepped into his creation on a rescue mission to save us from our wicked choices. Millions of people today, even highly educated people, have very little concept of the basic Bible stories or Christian principles of sin and salvation that most of us in this room would take for for granted. Which means for us, most of us, as we take advantage of these opportunities, need to realize the opportunity is likely an ongoing conversation, building the framework. But perhaps most strikingly, we should note that Paul teaches them from the Law of Moses and from the Prophets. The Bible's shorthand for the Old Testament Scriptures. We say this often, but it bears repeating. All of Scripture, all of Scripture, all of Scripture is about Jesus. Not just the New Testament, but literally Genesis to Revelation is all telling the story of what Jesus has come to do. This is one aspect of what we mean by being submitted to the Scriptures. We aim to search the Scriptures. Why? To know Jesus. And all the Scriptures we search— Genesis to Revelation to know Jesus. And so if we're going to be prepared to make the most of every opportunity to teach all people about King Jesus from all the Scripture, then one of the things that means is you and I need to understand how all the Scripture points to Jesus. And so if this is an area you sense you need help in particular, as you read a book like Leviticus or Numbers or some of the prophets, and you're wondering, how in the world does this point to Jesus? I've got three resources I can point you to. One is first, our Seeing Jesus Journals. So if you've not actually read the journal and you've just used it to write, let me encourage you, look at the introduction, look at Appendix 3. There's a wonderful framework for how to approach every passage, asking good questions that will help you to see Christ in all of Scripture. And if you would prefer not to do that reading, but just one shorthand our bookmarks. Flip them over. Don't just look at the reading schedule. Look at the questions on the back. Use that meditation guide that will lead you into looking for Jesus in all of Scripture. But if after reading the introduction and the appendix and looking at those questions, you're still like, I don't know how to do this. A second resource that's also available right on the welcome table in the foyer is our Seeing Jesus booklets. As we're reading the scriptures together, we're providing little booklets that help us to see instance after instance of how we can see Jesus, his gospel, in all the pages of scripture. And both of these resources, just to be really clear, are free to you. They're intended for you to just pick them up if you'll use them. So if you need that, please, I would encourage you to do so. But finally, if you'd want a more substantive explanation of how to read all of scripture in a way that points you to Jesus, I'd encourage you to buy... Biblical Theology by Nick Rourke and Robert Klein. Biblical Theology by Nick Rourke and Robert Klein. It's a purple book, a part of the Building Healthy Churches series. And in it, you'll learn how the story of Scripture is King Jesus' story. It's all about him and all about his glory. I do have one copy, so if someone wants that, I will gladly give that to you. But everyone else, you'll need to buy it on Amazon or wherever you go to for books. But those three resources, if you feel strained... To see Jesus in all of Scripture, you're not going to be able to, then as someone brings up a conversation, point them to Christ from a variety of places and a variety of circumstances. And so this is the work we can do to feed our souls, but also to be ready for the mission Jesus has invited us on. And as we see how Genesis to Revelation is all about Jesus, we will be more and more ready to make the most of every opportunity to teach people about King Jesus even when those opportunities aren't ideal. Fourth, look with me at verse 24. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see but never perceive, for this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. So as we join Jesus in his mission, we should trust the Holy Spirit with the results of our ministry. You should trust the Holy Spirit with the results of our ministry. As Paul continues to persuade and seek to convince all these people to believe Jesus is the king of the kingdom they've been anticipating, we learn that the same message produces two different results. Some were convinced by what Jesus said and believed, while others continued to disbelieve. And those who continue to disbelieve walk away from this conversation altogether when Paul affirms in verse 25 that the Holy Spirit was right in what he said to their fathers through the prophet Isaiah. Now, before we consider what the Holy Spirit was right about, I want you to notice this rather straightforward explanation of the scripture's view of itself. As one scholar writes, this is a straightforward expression of the belief in the inspiration of the scriptures. The words given through the prophet Isaiah are the words of the Holy Spirit, and thus of God himself as the Holy Spirit. Is God's Spirit. And as a consequence of Scripture being God's Word, it shares His attributes. As God speaks truly, God's Word is true. As God speaks authoritatively, God's Word is authoritative. Now, it's important for everyone to realize this does not prove that Scripture is God's Word. We don't have any such proof beyond a shadow of a doubt. But if you're interested in knowing what the Scripture teaches regarding itself, Scripture itself teaches that it's God's Word. And bears God's authority. And so as a result, our statement of faith says this. As the verbally inspired word of God, the Bible is without error in the original writings, the complete revelation of his will for salvation, and the ultimate authority by which every realm of human knowledge and endeavor should be judged. Therefore, it is to be believed in all that it teaches, obeyed in all that it requires, trusted in all that it promises. Given what God's word is, The appropriate response of our hearts is submission. It's to believe, to obey, to trust. But what Paul says in particular, the Holy Spirit affirms, is found just a little later. He says, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. Why is that the case? Well, he goes on to explain, this people's heart has grown dull. They've shut their eyes. They've closed their ears. They don't want to listen to what God has said. And if they listened, they would turn and they would be healed. But instead of responding to God's word, they have shut themselves off to it. And so as a result in verse 28, he tells us that that's the reason why the gospel has been offered, not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles, because they are willing to listen to God's word. And this reminds us, as many of preachers, not just myself, are fond of saying, hearing the word of God always has an effect on people. And the same sun that melts the ice also hardens the clay. And So either people are going to be melted and moved by Jesus as they hear God's word, or they're going to be hardened to Jesus, rejecting him, increasingly becoming hard-hearted towards him as a result. No one can listen to the gospel and remain neutral to it. And so if you're not a Christian, and by that I want to be clear, what I mean is you have not turned from your sin and personally trusted Jesus so that you have a relationship with him. What I want you to understand is every time you listen to me or anyone else preach, every time you open up God's word for yourself, every time you hear the gospel, you are either being softened towards Christ or hardened towards him. And so I would plead with you, respond to Jesus now while there's still time, by repenting of your sin and trusting Jesus. If you continue to reject his word or ignore his word, then the Lord may eventually give you what you're asking for, eternal separation away from him forever. But if you're a Christian, I hope what you'll notice here is that even when you are faithful to God's word, you can expect mixed responses. God's Blessing does not equate faithfulness. Sometimes, God's blessing upon an organization, that they're not faithful. And yet, that person's still getting a following. God's blessing does not equal his approval. Other times, someone is being incredibly faithful, and yet it seems as though God's blessing is not being poured out on that ministry. There's no fruit, it appears. We cannot equate God's blessing with God's approval. That is the message of the prosperity gospel, actually. Our job, though, is to be faithful to explain Jesus, that he is king from all of scripture, trusting God with the results, trusting that as we're faithful, over time, he will bring about fruit. But the Holy Spirit's job is to take that message and apply it to people's hearts. And so I would plead with you, brothers and sisters in Christ, don't place upon your own shoulders the burden of making people make up their mind. That's not your job. Your job is to be faithful in teaching all of the scripture, all about Jesus, trusting the Holy Spirit to produce the results. Finally, look with me in verse 30. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Here we should see that as we join Jesus in his mission, we should remember God's word is not bound by our circumstances. God's word is not bound by our circumstances. For two years at his own expense, Paul welcomes everyone, proclaims the kingdom and teaches about Jesus. That alone is a wonderful example to us, of how our commitment to a gospel of grace, purchased by the blood of Jesus, should shape our ministry. Our ministry ought to be sacrificial. We ought to be willing to sacrifice not only our time, but our money in order to point people to Jesus. Our ministry ought to be hospitable and universal in its call. We ought to be willing to welcome anyone and everyone who would be willing to talk with us about Jesus. And finally, it's all about Jesus. That's what our ministry needs to be all about. But what I want you to notice especially is that despite being in chains, being under house arrest, Luke recounts how Paul engages in this ministry. He's not ashamed of the gospel. He's not ashamed of his chains, but simply he proclaims the kingdom of God. Teaches about Jesus. How? With all boldness and without hindrance. Despite his unideal circumstances, the ministry, and more importantly, the advancement of the gospel, is unhindered. It's not bound. As Paul would write while he's in prison in 2 Timothy chapter 2, the word of God is not bound. Or as Isaiah would declare in Isaiah 55, God's word shall not return void, but shall accomplish the purpose for which it's sin. Or as we heard earlier, Jesus promised, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, I want you to take heart from these promises. God's word is not bound. Your circumstances cannot hinder the progress of the gospel. In fact, as Jonathan Lehman writes, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus. And he has given his church the authority to march on the nations. His church will therefore advance like an army that cannot be stopped. The boundary lines of the nations won't stop it. The executive orders of presidents and prime ministers won't stop it. Not even the gates of hell itself will slow it down. What incredible news for us. When yet again another physical ailment disrupts our plans, when our work demands more and more of our time so that we're not able to do all that we'd hope, or as in my case, when commitment to family means that I don't have the mental energy, the emotional energy, or the physical energy that I would want to give, or any of the other countless, unlimited number of circumstances that place limitations on us. Those limitations on us cannot limit God's word. We might think of Martin Luther, the famous Protestant reformer whose life was threatened for what he taught, who was tried at the Diet of Worms and was kidnapped by his friends for safekeeping, who was kept in the castle of Wartburg for months in order to keep him safe. Despite all these circumstances, the world was flipped upside down By what he was teaching. And how does he describe it he's looking back on his life? I did nothing. The word did everything. We must remember God's word is not bound by any of our circumstances. We can take heart that God and his gospel will advance through our circumstances, even the ones that limit us. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1, but God chose what is foolish in the world, to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And of course, this is what he did with Jesus. And Jesus was weak on the cross. It was through that, that he redeemed all those who would repent and trust in him. As long as we are faithful to teach the word of God, as we have opportunity in whatever circumstances we find ourselves in, we can be confident that it will accomplish its purpose. And this is why we want God's Word to be at the very heart of all the organized ministry we do as a church. We also want it to be at the heart of all the organic ministry we do as a church. Because what we can guarantee will move forward is God's Word. And so if we're faithful to that, and whatever we do, we will see God's gospel advance. And so, dear brothers and sisters, again, take heart. Although you get to be involved in the advancement of the gospel... It doesn't depend upon you. And it will not be bound or hindered by your circumstances, whatever they are. And so instead, with whatever opportunity the Lord provides you, use it to minister the gospel, to teach the gospel, to teach his word with all boldness. Trust that through the power of God's word, he will accomplish his purpose. We should remember that God's word, is not bound by our circumstances. And so Northwood, as we conclude this wonderful book and this particular passage, Jesus invites us to join us on his mission that began with his life, death, and resurrection, and that advanced throughout the book of Acts, first making its way into Jerusalem, then making its way out to Judea, then into Samaria, and then as Paul did his ministry all the way to the ends of earth, to Rome, And then beyond. And now we get to be a part of that same mission. To be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. And as we join him in his work. He invites us to do so. Not being surprised when non-Christians are kind, hospitable, and honorable. By taking courage from one another as God works in and through us. By making the most of every opportunity to teach all people about King Jesus from all of Scripture trusting the Holy Spirit with the results of our ministry and by remembering that as we go about all this, God's word, his gospel, will never be bound by our limitations. And so as we conclude our time together this morning in God's word, I want to invite all of us to reflect on what God has been saying to us and respond with the obedience of faith. Perhaps these questions will help. First, what does your attitude towards non-Christians indicate you believe about non-Christians? Does it indicate you think Christians are better than non-Christians? If that's the case, let me just plead with you. Right now, confess your pride to God and ask the Holy Spirit to help you see Christian, or non-Christians as he does. The only difference being a difference of recognition and need. Second, how are you relying on other Christians to give you courage and evangelism? If you're not, ask your small group, your CBR group, Or someone you trust in this congregation to pray with you for people you're trying to reach? Third, what step can you take to grow in your understanding of how all of Scripture points to Jesus? And consider using the meditation questions on the back of our CBR bookmarks. To use the Seeing Jesus booklets or to pick up biblical theology. Fourth, are you being hardened or softened by God's Word? Ask today that the... Holy Spirit would soften your heart and turn you towards Jesus? And finally, how does the power of God's word give you confidence in ministry no matter your circumstances? And thank God the advancement of the gospel doesn't depend on you, but depends on the power of his word and his grace. Let's take a moment to reflect on what God has been saying to us through his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you that the mission you have entrusted to us <clears throat> doesn't begin with us, but begins with you. We thank you that you loved us so much that you would take on human flesh to pursue us, to die for us, to rise for us. We ask that as we consider your big purposes and plan, your great grace and power through your word and your spirit. We would have great confidence in joining you in that mission even now. Lord, we ask that you would help us to sense the privilege it is and yet have the freedom of knowing your mission will advance no matter what. And so, Lord, we ask today you would help us to respond with your obedience of faith and to trust you, your grace, your power, and all that you do. And, Lord, we ask that we'd have the privilege of seeing your mission advance and through our church family. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.